the aim of God. I know it sounds incredibly presumptuous to talk about the aim of God, but this little book here called the Bible, this book is, I believe, the word of God from which I I will take all of my insights and answers tonight. The God who inspired it. What's he about in creating the universe? What's he about in running history the way he's run it and sending his son into it? What's the point? Here's my answer to that. God's aim or the aim of Jesus Christ or the aim of Christianity is to maximize your pleasure and to magnify his greatness. To maximize our pleasure, and I'm thinking quantitatively and qualitatively, to maximize our pleasure qualitatively and quantitatively and to magnify his son, Jesus Christ. And magnify is a tricky word because there are two ways to magnify something with a magnifying glass or with a telescope or say a microscope or a telescope. They magnify in exactly opposite ways. A microscope magnifies by making little things look bigger than they are, so you can see them. And a telescope magnifies by making huge things that look little to the naked eye look more like they really are. That's very different. A star looks little to the naked eye. It's very big. A telescope magnifies by making that little thing to the naked eye look like what it really is. Whereas a microscope takes a thing that really is teeny-weeny, look like what it isn't, mainly bigger. Now, if you do the, the latter with God, that is, if you try to magnify God with a microscope, you blaspheme. You can't make God look bigger than he is or greater than he is. He's always greater than we think he is, and our job is to try to see him for what he really is. And so my argument is God's purpose in creating the universe and his purpose in sending his son and his purpose in sending me here tonight and his purpose in Christianity all over the world is to maximize our pleasure and to magnify like a telescope Jesus Christ, who is greater than anybody thinks he is and needs to be made to look that way in the world which is what we're designed to do. Your life was created to magnify Jesus Christ in delighting in him. So let me talk about the destruction of this pleasure. My assumption in that title, I I gave these folks who promoted this thing the title, Undoing the Destruction of Pleasure. The pleasure I have in mind is the pleasure God means for us to have forever and ever, which is 10,000 times greater than anybody can imagine and 10,000 times longer than you can count. So both quantitatively in terms of time and qualitatively in terms of exquisiteness of satisfaction, what God has to give us is better than anything anybody else can give you. And that is being destroyed. So what do I mean by that? that? The destruction of pleasure. 
What is the destruction of pleasure? Because Christianity is designed in its whole enterprise, in the coming of Jesus Christ into the world, his living a perfect life, his dying on a cross at age 33, his rising from the dead three days later, his reigning in heaven today, his planning to come back again. That whole, what seems like a mythological thing to the world, is all designed to undo this destruction of God's willed pleasure for his people. So what, what is this destruction that I have in mind? I could put it in one word, but that wouldn't communicate all I want to. So I'm going to put it in that word and then show you four things that flow from this one destructive word. The one word that destroys pleasure is sin. And Christianity teaches that every one of us has sinned, not just in that we've done wrong things, things that our own conscience condemns, things that the law of God condemns, things that the world condemns. We know we've all sinned. However you want to define it, you know you've sinned because you have standards you've fallen short of. Even if they're not God's standards, you've fallen short of your own standards. And if God has higher than yours, then you know you've fallen short of his. Everybody in this room is a sinner. It doesn't take any big authority to prove that. You know you've done wrong. You know your conscience condemns you. You know you feel guilty from time to time. And if you let yourself believe in a God, you know that God is, has something to do with this. So sin is real. And the Bible says everybody's a sinner. But now, now what? I mean, so what? Now what? And four destructive things stand in the way of my everlasting and infinite pleasure because of sin. So I want to tell you what these four things are, give you a biblical underpinning for them. So you know I'm not just thinking them up. They come out of this book that's been around for a couple thousand years. And what is Christianity's undoing of these four things to release the possibility that this pleasure might flow again toward me, a sinner. Okay, that's the agenda. So here's the first thing that comes from sin, the wrath of God. So the Bible teaches God loves the world and God is angry with the world. Not either or. It's not, you have to choose between a loving God for some religions and a wrathful God in other religions. Christianity has both because his wrath flows against sin, which is the destruction of the pleasure he designed for us, which is a pleasure in him, which would magnify him. If you take pleasure in something, you show that something to be great, you treasure it. And if you treasure God or take pleasure in God, he's shown to be great. And if something robs you of your pleasure in God, it makes God look small, smaller than alcohol or smaller than sex or smaller than money or smaller than preaching or smaller than writing books or smaller than family. Whatever you take most pleasure in, God is shown to be smaller and God gets very angry when he is shown to be small. He has to. It would be unrighteous and unjust if God did not love his own glory and hold it up for our enjoyment. So the wrath of God is real. The Bible says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Romans 
So that's the first thing we've got to deal with. There's got to be some solution to this. If we're ever going to be happy forever, we've got to get the wrath of God off of us somehow. And it is real and it's in the world. Here's the second obstacle or the second destruction of pleasure. Suffering. I don't know your backgrounds. I don't know your health condition right now. I don't know the relationships you have right now. Uh, You've all tasted some suffering, but mainly probably we in America No suffering by watching it. We live in a Disneyland compared to the rest of the world. America is a place of one mammoth luxury. Whereas in the earthquake in India right now, they're still trying to dig bodies out. El Salvador's earthquake, the folks that died in the fishing boat when the submarine hit it. Uh, Just, just, I mean, if you have, you watch TV or or you have a, a homepage on your your internet provider, like I do, you just hit it and every time it comes up, there's a new, there's a new suffering, right? So that is a destruction of pleasure. It's the destruction of the pleasure of the people who are under the rubble in India. It's the destruction of the people that are at the bottom of the ocean in a submarine or because they were in the belly of that ship when the submarine cut through it, suffering is a mammoth obstacle to pleasure. I was sitting beside a guy today at noon as we had lunch, and he said, could I just ask for prayer for my boss at work? Because her sister, who lives in, I forget now where he said, Boston, Massachusetts, or somewhere, was feeling sick yesterday, went to the doctor, and the doctor said, this, is, this looks funny. Let's do some blood tests. They find out she has pneumonia And lo and behold, it's this blood pneumonia, and they got to take her leg off tomorrow. A mother of four had a little little discomfort last week, and they're taking her leg off tomorrow, and she may die. And she's married to a man who has first wife died of blood pneumonia, and they found it on the very same day, February 10, five years ago. Is that weird or what? So here's a destruction of pleasure. So you can point to everywhere in your life and say, you, you say God is after our pleasure in this world? Well, you've got to say something about suffering here because suffering is a massive destruction of pleasure. And if it's God's goal that we have pleasure, then suffering doesn't make any sense. So I'll come back to that in a minute. Here's the third one. The deceitfulness of Pleasures that people do choose is a destruction of real pleasure. Now, I choose the word deceit because that's the way the Bible talks about it. Uh, In one of Paul, the apostle's letters that he wrote in the New Testament, he said that we are to be new in Christ and to put off desires of deceit. It's always fascinated me, these, these phrases deceitful desires. What's a deceitful desire? It's a desire that in its very nature promises you pleasure for a season and deceives you because it won't pay off in the end. Most pleasures that are outside God are like that. They are deceitful. They look so attractive. This thing that you can do to have so much pleasure When pleasures that are short-lived and half-baked 
take over your life, it's a destruction of pleasure. You think you're living for pleasure. We think, well, how can you commend Christianity as the pursuit of pleasure when the problem with the world is they're pursuing pleasure? That's not the problem with the world. The problem with the world is that people are pursuing pleasure that's so half-baked. It's like investing your money in a savings account instead of in mutual funds. Well, that's a risky analogy. <laughs> Saving a pound. What do you get? 1%, maybe. If you had your money in mutual funds for 30 years, you'd average 15%. So anybody that comes along and sells you the pleasures of a savings account over the long haul is destroying the maximization of your financial pleasures, which I don't think are very important pleasures. It's just an analogy. Deceitful pleasures are the destruction of pleasure. So that's the third obstacle. And here's the last one, namely death. If you're going to die, which you are, then either that will introduce you into nothingness and so all of your pleasures will be over, and that's a destruction of pleasure, or you'll be introduced into hell, and that'll be the end of pleasure, or you'll be introduced into heaven. Those are your three Post-death options, I presume, philosophically. Really good, really bad, or zero. And uh, the really bad and the zero are the end of pleasure. And the really good is the enhancement and extension of pleasure forevermore, which is, if that's true, that's what I want. I want to maximize my pleasure so that I get the, the intensest kind. And I want to extend it, not for 80 years, but for 80,000 centuries of years. That's what I'm after. So those are the four destructive obstacles. The wrath of God, suffering, deceitful pleasures that don't pay off, and death. Now, Christianity, my argument is, Christianity, God, His Son, Jesus Christ, this, this spreading of the faith called Christianity, is designed... To undo those four destructions of pleasure. So how? Let me just mention how and then raise one crucial objection. Number one, the undoing of the wrath of God. God planned the undoing of the wrath of God for all who would receive it. Now how did he do that? He did it according to... Paul's letter to the Romans by sending his son into the world. And let me read you because this is so close to the heart of Christianity. Jesus Christ crucified on a cross in the place of sinners like you and me to bear the wrath of God for us so that we could escape from it. That's the essence of Christianity called substituting Christ for sinners. Here's the way it reads in the book of Romans being justified or being counted righteous as a gift by his grace, God's grace, through a deliverance or a redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed. So he displayed his son publicly as a here a big religious word. Either some translations say propitiation, some say expiation. The word means appeasement. That is, taking the wrath of God and removing it, removing it off of sinners who deserve it, me. 
How did that happen? How do you and I, who are sinners and deserve holy, just wrath from a God that we've dishonored, how do we escape it? How does it get taken off of it if he's just, if he's holy? And his answer is, I send my son to bear it in your place. So let me read the rest of that. To demonstrate his righteousness or his justice, because in his forbearance, that is his patience, he passed over sins previously committed. He sent his son to demonstrate, I say, his righteousness at the present time so that he could be both just and the justifier of him who has faith in Jesus. Now, let me explain that if I can just briefly. God has two aims. He wants to be just. He has to be just if he's God. And he wants to justify us. And we're ungodly. So how do you justify the ungodly and be just? You can't. No judge in Hennepin County Court downtown could justify a guilty rapist and say, all right, we'll let you go. And I'll just declare that you now are Innocent. And you go and uh, justice will be served. And nobody would agree that justice is served. So how does God do this? How does God say to John Piper, sinner who deserves wrath and punishment and hell, not guilty, John, my child, I adopt you. You can now live in heaven forever and have your pleasures maximized by me who knows about pleasure more than anybody else. How can that possibly be just? And the answer is, and we may not conceive of how it can really be, but this is what he says. I will send my son who is himself God. And there's a great mystery of the Trinity here of how Jesus Christ can be God and be man. But I will send him. He will clothe himself with flesh and he will in your place bear my own wrath. You know, the magazine that I took this out of has a big article on God and violence. Or it's, I think it's the title of it is called Violence and the Atonement. Now, the atonement is what happened at the cross when God atoned for our sins so that our sins could be taken away. Jesus could bear our wrath. We could be forgiven and we could be justified, not guilty, in God's presence forever. And you know what the article is about? Divine child abuse. Is that what the cross is? That's what the article asks. Is the cross of Jesus Christ an instance of divine child abuse? Isn't that a provocative question? In a sense, it is. And it would therefore be a horrible thing unless two things. One, it was to deliver millions of people from abuse and he was going to raise him from the dead. Because it was God who did the cross. The Bible's real clear on that. God isn't wringing his hands in heaven saying, oh dear, look what they're doing to my son when they put the thorns in his head and, and drive the nails through his hands and thrust the sword up in his side and spit on him and pull out his beard and put a mask on him and slap him and ask him to prophesy and mock him and put the robe on him and hit him with rods and strip him and make him shamed. That was not an accident. God sent him so that that could happen. 
so that I, the guilty sinner who deserved to be treated like that, can go absolutely free in heaven forever with God as his child instead of his enemy. So my answer to the first question, how do you, how do you solve the destruction of pleasure through the wrath of God? The answer is the cross of Jesus Christ. 2,000 years ago when he was crucified. And even pagan historians write about this. This is a mythological thing. This is so different from Greek myth and Roman myths and other kinds of myths in various cultures. There are all kinds of historical corroborations that this man, Jesus Christ, lived, died. And then it gets more controversial in the resurrection, but also rose. Number two, what about the undoing of suffering? What have you got to say about that? What did God do? What does Christianity say about the undoing of suffering? Let me answer it in two stages. Undoing it in this world and undoing it in the world to come. How does Christianity go about undoing it in this world? And I admit here that Christianity undoes it incrementally, that is, in stages. Christianity does not have an answer, nor pretend to have an answer, to remove all suffering now in this age. Like tomorrow, do it, and it'll be gone. But it does have an answer for how to move toward the removal of suffering. In fact, it is the job of every Christian to move towards the removal of as much suffering as he can, both in this life and in the life to come. So in this world, the answers are two. One is healing, both supernaturally and naturally. James, the book of James, written by Jesus' brother, says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. We prayed for that woman who's going to have her leg taken off tomorrow, that tonight the blood would flow and she wouldn't have to have her leg taken off. I do not know whether God will answer that prayer. He can, he often does. But we don't tell God how to run the world with any absolute certainty. He's God, not us, but he tells us to pray for things. And often he answers our prayers when he deems them wise and good for us and for others. So healing is one way. And then naturally as well. God wonderfully ordains that there be science and that there be antibiotics and that there be surgeries and that there be anti-malarial medicines that save people and all kinds of things. This is all of the wonderful common grace of God that we're able to develop that. The world doesn't acknowledge that, but Christianity teaches that it is so. Here's the other thing besides healing, the incremental removal of suffering and healing, but love. Christianity teaches its people. I'll read you a verse from the Bible. Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify for himself a people of his own who are zealous for good deeds. Now, some of you may have a conception of Christianity that what Christianity does is get people to stop drinking or smoking or doing bad things so that they can go to church, you know, read their Bibles, pray, and that's the end of your conception. That's not the point. This, this verse says, At the cost of his own life, he redeemed a people who would be passionate for good deeds. And, and the good deeds 
in his mind are alleviating the suffering of widows and orphans and people underneath the rubble in India. So you could say, if you want to, you can use arguments about earthquakes and floods and disease and say, oh, that can't be a good God if that happens. Or you can go the biblical route and say, what he does incrementally now is create a people who head towards El Salvador. I've got a son named Benjamin. My Benjamin is 25. He went through his period of pain and, and uh, rebellion as well. But God got a hold of him in a pickup truck in Georgia a few years ago and made him cry for 30 minutes on his way to Peachtree City. And he met Jesus and he decided he wanted to become a missionary instead of a metal worker where he was making good money. And now he's at Moody Bible Institute. And last year when the earthquake happened in Turkey, remember that one? He quit school and went to Turkey for three months. That's Christianity. And spent his whole three months there getting way behind in his studies and saying, who cares about studies? I'm a Christian. I'm not a student first. I'm a Christian first. I know God. Who cares about education if it just makes you a private little self-serving prig? So I, I'm not trying to sell Christianity on the basis of the Christians you know. Maybe that's who they are. I want to sell Christianity to you on the basis of what God says it is, what Jesus came to make it. And it says to make a people zealous for good deeds. That's what I meant at the beginning when I said, I'm a human. I don't want to throw away my life watching soaps. I got a letter from a woman the other day who came to my church in 1986 and said I, she thought I was crazy, way too emotional. Christian hedonist Christianity stuff. She was here at the university. She gets married. She's kind of a nominal Christian she, she falls away from church and Christianity, and she told me in the letter she was in bondage, absolute bondage to soap operas for 12 years. I never had anybody tell me that. I assumed that was true, because I can't imagine why anybody would watch them unless they're in bondage. <laughs> but, but she said she was in bondage, and then, and then God got a hold of her, and now... So I, I think a lot of people have, have a conception of life as just... Just veg in front of a TV or veg, just veg, you know. Christianity is about getting people off of sofas, out from in front of soap operas and on the streets and in India and in El Salvador and in the ghettos and in the universities where there are people who don't know God are throwing their lives away, either trying to make lots of money or have lots of sex or go to lots of parties or whatever your thing happens to be. Just get into the games of Internet or whatever. And that's not what it's about. The most deep and satisfying pleasures now and in the age to come are in giving your life away to make people happy in God. So love, Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you love one another. By this will all men know that you're my disciples if you love one another. If you see people who aren't loving people, just don't even assume they're Christian. I don't care what they say about Jesus. Don't assume it. A real Christian is a lay your life down 24-7 kind of servant of delivering people from the destruction of their pleasure. Even if he's dragging them out of saloons. I have a pastor friend who I was praying with about my son. He said, I want to give you courage, brother, because I had a daughter and they'd call us almost every week to come get her passed out on the disco floor. This is a pastor. 
And they go down there and put her in the car and take her home, crying their eyes out that their daughter would drink so heavily or get drugged and, and just pass out on the floor. Now, when you pull a young lady out of that situation, and she went there to have pleasure, and it wasn't working. When you pull her out of that, you're for her, not against her, no matter what she feels. You are, for, you are a loving person to try to rescue people from deceitful pleasures. Well, that, that's my answer to what Christianity says about the ameliorating or the, the undoing of the destruction of suffering in this age incrementally. What about ultimately? I mean, incre- who cares about increments if it lasts forever? You know, if, if we're going to suffer forever partially, then that's not the maximization of our pleasure. So Christianity does have an answer, and the answer, oh, it's all over the Bible. Let me read you one of the pieces from the last book of the Bible, Revelation. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And this is people who've received his son now. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning. There will no longer be any crying or pain, for the first things have passed away. Someday it's going to all be over. All pain, all crying, all depression, all arthritis, all cancer, all Alzheimer's, all car accidents, all earthquakes, all floods, all diseases are going to be over. And if you, if you knew the Bible in detail, you'd know that in, in the future there's not just this kind of ethereal future with gold streets and glassy ponds. and That never appealed to me as a kid. Um, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Lions will lie down with lambs and children will play upon the hole of the adder. And we will beat our swords into plowshares and war will be no more. And all that is good about this world, which is much, will be preserved. And all that is bad will be done away. And all those who have trusted in Christ, who purchased all that for us, will have it. And all those who have rejected him will not have it. And I'm here tonight to try to maximize your pleasure. Then, forever. And I've already answered, I suppose... Um, the question about death, so I'll leave that off. I mean, resurrection is the answer of death. We will be raised. If you believe in Christ, the Bible teaches, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who gives us the victory over death. That's the ultimate undoing of the destruction of pleasure. But I passed over this undoing of deceitful pleasures, which is going to lead me to uh, the, the final things I wanted to say. How does Christianity undo deceitful pleasures? This is where we get into misunderstanding because there's so many deceitful pleasures in the world that Christianity, in trying to rescue people from them, gets the bad rap of opposing pleasure. So if you've got five things in your life that you devote yourself to for pleasure... And Christianity teaches they're all deceitful. Say money. Or illicit sex. Sex is God's idea. 
And we just mess it up in the way we handle it. And along comes Christianity calling people away from deceitful pleasures to real pleasures. It can be easily misunderstood. So here's the kind of verse from the Bible that I have in mind when I say undoing deceitful pleasures and undoing the destruction of real pleasures. Psalm 1611, David wrote in the Old Testament, you make known to me, you God make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, either that's true or false. If it's true, then to leave God, to abandon God, to resist God, to reject God is suicidal and foolish. Because at his right hand are pleasures forevermore and fullness of joy. I love those two adverbs. Well, maybe one's an adjective. I'll lose my grammar here. Fullness and forever. Fullness and forever. I want both. I want quality, full, and I want quantity, forever. I don't want 99% proof pleasure. I want 100% proof pleasure. And I don't want it to last 100 years. I want it to last 100 eons of years. And that's what Psalm 1611 says is at God's right hand. And I just need to have my eyes open. And I'm praying that your eyes will be open. To see that this God who made a world like this, which is just lavish with delights that are wholesome and good and are all little teeny weeny echoes of what he really is in what he has to offer us would get into our heads and make himself known so that we don't keep going down the suicidal track of deceitful pleasures. Another part of Scripture says, the fruit of the Spirit is joy. Joy. The Spirit of God is given to his children when they believe in Jesus in order to help them be happy. It said, Jesus said, I speak these things to you, the things that are written in the Gospel of John. I speak these things to you so that my joy might be in you and your joy might be full. Jesus said that. Now think about his joy. He's God in the flesh. The joy of God is an infinite joy. Nobody has a joy like God has joy. I mean, if you were, if you were infinite and you had all wisdom, and all power, and all goodness, wouldn't you use it to infinitely increase your joy? I would, and God does. God is the happiest being in the universe because he has all the resources at his disposal and he has designed for his happiness to be shared. So he sends the sun into the world to remove all the obstacles and destructions of pleasure and he tells his son, now say this, I speak these things to you so that my joy, which is infinite, might be in you and your joy might be full. That is awesome to think that we're designed for godlike joy. Okay, those are my answers about what Christianity teaches and is in order to undo the destruction of those four destructive obstacles to our everlasting and maximum pleasure. Wrath of God, suffering, deceitful pleasures, and death. 
Christianity has an answer for those four obstacles. Now, the last thing I want to do before I, I take some questions is to ask this question. You might, you, I don't know at all what your background is in Christianity, whether you've been to church, whether you've read the Bible or whatever, but it may be that this idea is new to you, that Christianity is designed to maximize our pleasure and magnify God's greatness, Jesus' greatness. So you may have some objections that pop into mind. Now, I've spoken on this theme, which is my favorite theme to talk about, all over the country, and I know the kind of objections that Christians raise to this. I mean, when I talk like this, Christians get bent out of shape because they don't think that's what, what they learned is really teaching. And so I have to defend this to Christians. And I would guess that unbelievers who know about Christianity would have some of the same objections that those Christians do because they're learning their Christianity from Christians who have a misconception of Christianity. So let me just tell you what some of those objections are and what I, what I say to those folks. Maybe there are some of you who are Christian and who don't like this way of talking about Christianity. First objection. Well, I hear you talking, but I can't believe the Bible really teaches that you should pursue your pleasure. You see, the implication of what I'm saying is if God and Christ and Christianity are all designed to pursue the maximization of my pleasure in God, which magnifies him, then I should pursue it. My life goal should be the maximization of my pleasure, which sounds just so dangerous to talk about for most Christians. And it is dangerous, but so is everything else the Bible says. The Bible is one of the most dangerous books in the world. You can't take a sentence out of the Bible without it being dangerous. You can fall off a horse on the right and on the left and on the front and on the back. Staying on the horse of truth is no small thing. Danger everywhere in the Bible. So, when it commands... This is my response to their question. Is it really taught in the Bible? When it commands Psalm 37, 4. Psalm chapter 37, verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord. It's a command. It says, delight yourself in the Lord. Or Psalm 100. Serve the Lord with gladness. There's another way to see it. I mean, there's commands all over the Bible to rejoice. The Bible is a demanding book. But you know its main demand? Be happy in God and all that he is for you in Jesus. That's the main demand of the Bible. It comes out in different language. Trust me. What is trust? It's counting on all that God is for you in Jesus. And he is such great things for you. You wouldn't honor that if you didn't take pleasure in it. The Bible threatens terrible things if we will not be happy, Jeremy Taylor said. The nature of faith proves this is biblical. What is faith? I'll read you this text from Hebrews, another book in the New Testament. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, let me say that slowly. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith. Got to trust God. Got to trust him or you can't please him. And then it defines faith two ways. You must believe that he is and that he rewards. That's just mind boggling. 
You cannot please God if you don't come to him, trusting him for reward. You see what the essence of faith is then? Faith is coming to God for the satisfaction that there is in him. He's our reward. What he is for us in Jesus Christ is the reward that we trust in. So you can't honor God or please God if you don't come to God for pleasure in God. Or what about sin? How does the, how does the Bible define sin? This is really interesting. I'll give you one quote from the prophet Jeremiah. Chapter 2, verse, I think, 13, where it says, Be astonished, be appalled, O heavens, for my people, this is God talking in Jeremiah, for my people have committed two great evils. So now what's the definition of evil? My people have committed two great evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and have hewn out, dug out for themselves cisterns, Broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's evil. That's the biblical definition of sin. So let me put it in my own words. Sin, according to the Bible, is contemplating God as a fountain of life and joy and infinite and everlasting pleasures and saying no. And turning our back on it, infinite, everlasting, all satisfying pleasures... And trying to carve out of the world and all of its possibilities cisterns from which to drink which can hold no water. So the Bible chooses to define sin in purely hedonistic terms. The problem with the world is not that the world is trying to be happy. That's not your problem. The problem with the world, as C.S. Lewis said, is that we are like little children content to make mud pies in the slums because we cannot imagine what a holiday at the sea is like. That's what's wrong with the world. Not that the world wants to be happy. There's absolutely nothing wrong with wanting to be happy. It's finding it in mud pies instead of a holiday at the sea or finding it in the world, the broken sisters, instead of the fountain of life, which God offers to us. So, yeah, it's biblical. That's my answer to these Christians who get bent out of shape. When I say these things, it sure is biblical. It's all over the place in the Bible. That's why I wrote that book, Desiring God, which is my attempt to show this truth. Um, let's see. I don't want to take too much time before I open it up. Here's, here's another really common question. They, they say, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This sounds totally contradictory to what I've heard as a call to self-denial. Don't you believe in self-denial? Isn't that the essence of Christianity? Didn't Jesus say, he who would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, that's a place of death and suffering and crucifixion, and follow me. Don't you believe that? It's in the Bible. They say to me, I say, I really believe that. I really believe that. So what are you saying? I said, well, just read the rest of the verse. Keep reading. Keep reading. That's my usual response to people when they, when they point to a verse and say, what about this? I say, keep reading. Just keep reading. Because you know what the rest of that verse says? The reason I call you to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me is because he who seeks to save his life will lose it. 
And he who loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So what's the reasoning there? What's he arguing? How's he arguing? He's saying, now look, you don't want to lose your life ultimately, do you? You want to maximize your pleasures. That's why you that's why you've got capacities for pleasures. You want to satisfy them. Yes. Well then lose your life. Huh? Because if you try to save your life, you lose it. And you don't want to lose it, do you? No. Well then lose it so that you can save it. That's the way Jesus talks. He's not easy to come to terms with. And I commend him to you. I mean, you're going to get you're getting 40 minutes of of what I hope, I believe, is Jesus talking, teaching tonight. But you need to go to the, these Gospels yourself and read this strange man called Jesus. Because he blew people's minds right and left. His enemies sent people to him. And they come back saying, nobody talks like this man. We didn't know what to say to him. <laughs> and that's the way he is. Which is going to be part of my answer to the question how you know these things are true. But... Um, What do I say then about self-denial? You know, that saying Jesus said again later in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 25, where he said, He who loves his life will lose it, but he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, that little qualifier in this world is key to unlock this saying. If you are bent on maximizing the amount of physical pleasures and material comforts in this world, and you don't care about what happens to you in eternity, or you don't care about the quality of the spiritual, moral dimensions of your pleasure here, then you lose. You will get a lot of pleasure in this world, physically and materially. I brought along uh, this novel by John Grisham. I have not read this. My wife just finished reading it. And uh, my son, Barnabas, read it. And so I picked it up. I said, hmm, I wonder if I should read this. And I read, I just want to read you the first paragraph. Some of you may remember it if you've read it. Grisham sells more, you know, he sells millions and millions of novels. They're all over. Every airport I go to just plastered with Grisham novels. Down to the last day, even the last hour now, I'm an old man, lonely, unloved, sick, hurting, tired of living. I'm ready for the hereafter. It has to be better than this. I own the tall glass building in which I sit, 97% of the company housed in it, below me, and the land around it half a mile in three directions, the 2,000 people who work here and the other 20,000 who do not. And I own the pipeline under the land that brings gas to the building from my fields in Texas, And I own the utility lines that deliver electricity, and I lease the satellite unseen miles above, by which I once barked commands to my empire flung far around the world. My assets exceed $11 billion. I own silver in Nevada and copper in Montana and coffee in Kenya and coal in Angola and rubber in Malaysia and natural gas in Texas and crude oil in Indonesia and steel in China. My company owns companies that produce electricity and make computers and build dams and print paperbacks and broadcast signals to my satellite. I have subsidiaries with divisions in more countries than anyone can find. I once owned all the appropriate toys, the yachts, the jets, the blondes, 
the homes in Europe, farms in Argentina, an island in the Pacific, thoroughbreds, even a hockey team. But I've grown too old for toys. The money is the root of my misery. I had three families, three ex-wives who bore seven children, six of whom are still alive and doing all they can to torment me. To the best of my knowledge, I fathered all seven and buried one. I should say his mother buried him. I was out of the country. I'm estranged from all the wives and all the children. They're gathered here today because I'm dying and it's time to divide the money. That's make-believe, but it's not make-believe. That's not make-believe. You want, you want $11 billion? You can have it. You can have it. I want Jesus forever. I want you with me forever. There's an illustration. I mean, I'll stop with this. Um, you've, you've all perhaps heard the hymn Amazing Grace. Um, how sweet the sound saved wretches like me. The man who wrote that is John Newton, slave trader, become pastor. And he gave an illustration of this $11 million billion business. He said, suppose... Hundred years ago, you're riding in a carriage to receive an inheritance, huge inheritance, millions of dollars, in New York. And you're riding in your carriage to receive an inheritance. And a mile from New York, your carriage breaks down. And you try to fix it, and you can't fix it. So you have to walk a mile to receive your inheritance. What would you say about the person who spent that mile? Grumbling, my carriage is broken, my carriage is broken, my carriage is broken. You'd say he was a fool. He's going to an inheritance. That's the way most of us are. You can have an $11 billion inheritance in Jesus. I'm not talking about material, physical things. I'm saying relationships matter. You know relationships matter. You know, I was talking to a woman who was in tears after my preaching yesterday because of the way God had touched her. And she had a son who's gone into all kinds of sexual horrific stuff. He's in treatment now because of addiction to sexual stuff. And he's just, it's just devastated her. She's a Christian. And, and this kid is a professing Christian. And, and the kid in treatment calls his mom up and says, no, this is what's happening. And I've agreed that you should call me every day while I'm in Las Vegas tending to the guy I work for, uh, for his vacation here, and ask me. And then she, she stepped in and suggested some things that she should ask him. Have you read your Bible? Are you praying? And he said, no, don't ask me that. Don't ask me that. If you want to ask me about the Bible, and if you want to ask me about praying, Make it relational. She didn't know what he was talking about. This woman was about my age. He said, ask me if I found something in the Bible that will help me know God as a person better or help me love the guy I work for more or put a relational twist on it, Mom. And she was asking me, what's going on here? And I think I just was... Bursting inside with what was going on here. Because you young people know the $11 billion is not the answer. It's relationships that's the answer. 
You know that. You know where your pain comes from and you know where your deepest pleasures come from. And they don't come from money and they don't come from drink and they don't come from drugs and they don't come from success in studies and they don't come from success in business. They come from whether anybody around you likes you, loves you, cares for you, sits down with you over pizza over at the hut and talks back and forth in a really happy, affirming way with you. You know relationships is where it's at. And God made you that way. And he's the ultimate person. And to know him and have a relationship with him will be the ultimate pleasure. And he has made a way home to the father and to the mother like that mother so that you can enjoy infinite pleasure. He's after all the destructions to destroy them. If you ask me right now, okay, I I think I'm catching on to what you think Christianity is. Why do you think it's true? Why do you think it's true? And there are four kinds of evidence, and I won't go into any of them. You can ask questions about it if you want. Historical evidences we could pursue. You can buy books on the historical reliability of, of this book that are very competent. But the reason I don't put a lot of weight there for you tonight is because... What you wind up with after the best historical arguments is high probabilities. And frankly, I'm asking you to risk your whole life on it. And it's very hard to risk your whole life just on high probabilities. The second is worldview considerations. I'm a Christian in large measure because after 55 years, as I keep asking questions about how the world fits together, how to make sense out of things like God my joy, my sin, justice, beauty, love, the judicial sentiment that makes my blood boil if I'm mistreated and my conscience, which makes others' blood boil if I mistreat them, and morality. All these realities, how do you make sense out of this thing called the universe and the world? And, And I have come to believe Christianity makes more sense out of more realities than anything I've ever seen. If I ever find a system of thought or a a philosophy of life, or a a being out there somewhere that makes more sense out of more reality, I'll buy it. I don't think it'll ever happen. So there's these worldview considerations. I think the third one is the most powerful for me, namely personal self-authentication. I would just ask you, you, if you're pondering, is Christianity true, how do you decide whether to trust anybody? That's just an existential question. How do you decide whether to trust somebody? I think your answer would be, well, I try to spend time with them and watch them and see how they behave and listen, read between the lines of their talk and see if they're an authentic person and and, uh, check their track record. and, And then after enough dealings, you say, I'm going to trust them with my money or with my marriage. I'll marry them or whatever. And you got to do that with Jesus. You got to decide. You you have no choice not to decide. You will either accept him or you'll walk away from him. Whether you accept him will depend on whether you trust him. And you come to trust him by opening up this book to especially those four gospels at the beginning of the New Testament where his story is told in four different ways and just reading them over and over and seeing whether or not standing forth from those Gospels is a Christ, a person who wins your trust. That's why I'm a Christian. As I have contemplated the man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, as he's presented to me in the Bible, I cannot 
turn away from him as a fool or a maniac or a liar or a trickster or whatever. And the same thing goes with those who wrote about him. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, Peter. When I read these men's writings, they are so penetrating. They are so coherent and they are so... um, the drive home to my soul so deeply is very hard for me to say they're in a dream world. They're in a mythological dream world. They have won my trust. And the last one is, if God is God and this is his book, it would not be surprising to me, and it is not surprising to me, if he were to shine forth in absolutely indescribable inarticulable ways from his word to your own soul. And I pray that he does that. So I'm going to stop here. I'm open for the next, say, 20 minutes to to feel anything. You can ask personal questions, philosophic questions, biblical questions, any kind of questions you want. If I don't think I have any idea, I'll just say so. But we didn't arrange for any microphone here because this is a small enough group and microphones. So Anybody, any kind of question is free game at all. Who's gonna who's got a question? Go ahead. The question is, when was I hit with a passion? And I don't I can't point to any time. I've never had a big crisis experience in my life. I didn't get saved through a big crisis experience, and I would say there was a period in my life, like six months maybe. Where, oh man, I can think of, as soon as I say this, I can think of other times where God was really churning in my life. Lying on my bed when I was a junior in college, I got my first single, you know, no roommate room when I was a junior in college. I had roommates up till then. And roommates are good, but boy, I wanted to be alone so bad because I felt such big things I wanted to deal with. I wanted to be able to get on my knees. I wanted to cry. I wanted to scream. I wanted to, I just needed to be alone some. So I, I got a room at St. Hall at Wheaton College. And I can remember lying on my back after reading, Are You Running With Me, Jesus? It was an old book. Nobody's ever heard of it today, probably. It was a paraphrase of Jesus. Lying there feeling so much about this Jesus that I was reading about saying, If you are real, you deserve the most absolute phenomenal allegiance if you're real. None of this namby-pamby, half-baked, lukewarm Christianity that looks just like the world except they go to church on Sunday. So that was part of it. But then in seminary in Pasadena, California, I had a teacher named Dan Fuller who began to open the book of Romans to me and the book of Galatians to me and the Sermon on the Mount to me in a way that took the sentences one at a time and showed me how they fit together so that the word itself just exploded with meaning for me. That's, that's probably the primary place. So the word of God is the channel through which God delivers his passions to us and kindles them in us. He's got another one. Another question. Go ahead. Okay. Absolutely. That is a profoundly important question. The question is, say more about the wrath of God. In particular, Nietzsche said it would be a bad potter who got angry at the pot he made if the pot turned out to be unuseful. And that is the ultimate question, isn't it? The ultimate question of how God is sovereign as a potter, 
which I do believe he is. So I'm not going to reject your illustration. It's biblical. And he does get angry at these pots. Let me see if I can put some pieces in there that might help. And then in the end, I'll tell you where I'm going to end. I'm going to end with mystery, <laughs> which satisfies very few people. But maybe I can say enough to give a little help. God designed us with a moral capacity. We are moral agents. We do good or we do evil. We choose good or we choose wrong. We esteem some things beautiful and some things ugly. There is something in us called a will or a volition which assesses and esteems some things high, some things low, approves and disapproves. And all of that has moral implications. And that's real. Those are real moral acts that are going on there. And when they are wrong and evil, God holds us accountable for them because they are genuinely unpraiseworthy. If John Piper, me, chooses something ugly and calls it beautiful, chooses something foolish and calls it wise, chooses something wrong and calls it right, that's ugly, that's unpraiseworthy and it's a dishonor to God who made me to choose the right and the good and he's angry at that. Now, the question, most people can handle that so far, but then you say, but, but you say he's sovereign. He's sovereign. He's the potter. He could change that if he wanted to. He could fix that. And I say, yes, he could. He could. And he is the potter and he is sovereign. And for his wise and holy purposes, he does not change it. He, he loosens the reins, as it were, when he could pull them just like this without calling anybody's will into question and pull them back from that. And he, he lets them do that with the will that he's given them, even though he could restrain them from it. And then we have to ask, okay, if he does that, is his reason for doing it and getting mad at them for the choices they're making, is that reason good enough to justify that pain? And here I have to say, on the basis of the Bible, I, I trust him that it is wise, that God has wise purposes for why he will ordain that not everybody be saved, transformed, that some people remain wicked. It could be my own son. This brings it really home to me. I don't say these things lightly. Is my son one of those whom God may not exert his sovereignty to rescue? And I don't know. So I'm faced with the possibility of having to choose between God and my son at this point. Is he wise and good and loving even if he lets my son perish forever and be tormented in hell? Because I believe in hell. And my settling is that God is wise and God is good. He has his purposes for what he does. I cannot call God to account. I, put, I can't put him in the dock and get above God and, and stand over him and say, I'm wise, you're not. I'm uh, just, you're unjust, and pass judgment on him. See, I would respond to Nietzsche, who are you, O oh man, to decide what is just for an infinitely wise and powerful potter to do with his pots. Who are you? I mean, maybe this potter has purposes for broken pots that are higher than yours. And maybe his anger at them is part of his pottery. 
Maybe it's part of what the pots should see and admire about him that he is just at these kinds of at being angry at these kinds of choices. So this is a high mystery here. I think this is a high complex thing. And my, in order to commend to you and to, to all of us that God is wise enough and good enough to be trusted with that anger at those pots, all I know to do at that point is what I said is to send you to watch him work, especially at the cross of his own son. God put forward his own son to suffer so much that he might rescue us to trust him and enjoy him with those perplexities. Now, you want to follow up on that some more? That's my best shot. at a, I mean, you, you started with the hardest question there is. It has to do with the source of evil, where did it come from? It has to do with how God can be sovereign and we can be responsible. How God can be loving and yet there be a hell. I mean, all those questions are wrapped up in your one question. And I appeal to um, God's sovereignty, which I affirm. God's love, which I affirm. My responsibility, which I affirm and which our consciences all commend to us. And say, if we can't make those fit perfectly... Keep working at it because Jonathan Edwards, a great philosophic religious mind from 200 years ago, he got pretty far in understanding this. But I think in this life, we're going to be stuck with some mysteries, which is what I expect. It says in the, the book of Deuteronomy, fifth book in the Bible, it says, the things that are hidden belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children. Now, that little, that helps me so much as a finite, fallible human being because what it says to me is, I've revealed 1,100 pages to you, but nowhere near everything you want to know. So that he says later in the New Testament, you will later know even as you are known. So if that's an unsatisfactory answer, it's the best I can do. Now, I, I understood the situation, you, and then I missed the question. Would that change, what did you say? Oh, absolutely. But it's not going to change my absolute approach. Let me repeat it because you may not have been able to hear. Um, She has learned, and it is true, that many acts of deviance, many acts of criminality, many acts of immorality uh, are, at least in part, owing to social, economic, psychological, familial background. Would that alter the way we would assess a person's sinfulness, guilt, and I answered yes, but not the ultimate condition. In other words, if I see a person who's been born into a a very dysfunctional home and had no modeling whatsoever of responsibility or of authority, um, and that kid acts out in ways that are disruptive at school, I'm going to want to do everything I can to cut that kid slack, to get him on track so he can make something of his life. And I will feel, I think my compassion level should rise with the degree of disadvantage that he's had. The biblical way of saying that is that when Jesus told a parable one time about a, um, a, a master of a household who went on a journey. And when he came back, if he found his servants beating 
or his foreman, I guess you could say, beating his servants, uh, he's going to get very upset with this guy and punish him. And then he broadened it out to say, those who know what they should have done will receive many stripes. And those who don't know will receive few stripes. So there's this seeming uh, correlation between punishment and uh, measures of accountability that come from what you know and what you've experienced, and it goes up and down. So that's why I said yes to your question. The reason I say no, ultimately, to whether they are guilty of dishonoring God is because I think no matter what our background has been, we're responsible for how we respond to our situation, how we respond to God. And, you know, almost all counselors today, those who deal with the hardest cases of dysfunction and deviance are, are coming around to this. I mean, things go in waves in the, in the psychological, sociological community. But there's a lot of talk today and a lot of emphasis today on you have to treat people as responsible. If you treat them as automat- um, robots or just uh, they're just a function, mere, the, the mere product of their family and their social conditions, it's, it's an absolute chaos. You can't run humanity anymore. And it leads to Big Brother... Orwell 1984, where, where instead of having prisons that hold people responsible, you give them shots and control them. So my answer is yes and no. Maybe one more. Go ahead, right here. Wow, that's good. That's a great one to end on. That's a powerful question. Jonathan Edwards spent years trying to answer that question. Her question is, if God's the happiest, infinitely happy being in the universe, why would he create? A universe. Is that your question? Why would he create people and everything? What motivates him to create if he's already perfectly content and you can't increase your happiness any by creating? And here's, I'll give you Jonathan Edwards' answer because I can't improve on it. And Jonathan Edwards, my favorite dead theologian. And uh, he said, it is no defect in a fountain that it is prone to overflow. That's his analogy. So what, what, I, what that means translated into other language is there's something about fullness of love and fullness of joy that loves, loves to be shared. So God creates moral, intelligent, rational creatures like us in order to share his joy. But if he were not full and content in himself, he would have created us out of need, out of need. And then he wouldn't be perfectly glorious and we couldn't share in the joy of a perfectly glorious God because he'd be a needy God. A God who needs me is not a God who can satisfy me, ultimately. So there has to be this amazing combination of his complete and total fullness in himself and then the spilling over of that fullness of joy on the creation so that they can share in that joy. So here's the way to wrap up the whole evening. That's why I said your your question is a great one to end on. I started by saying I have two, two theses. God, Christ, and Christianity is all about the maximization of your pleasure and the magnification of his greatness. Now, here's the way those two fit together. If it's true 
that God is most satisfied or most glorified in us. When we are most satisfied in him, which I think true, you just ask yourself that question. Don't you make much of things when you are satisfied in them? If you say what makes me really happy is listening to this band, you're saying something big about that band. You're glorifying, magnifying, praising that band. So if you say what makes me really happy is God and all that God is for me in Jesus, you're making something of God. So your happiness and his greatness are one. They come together because the more happy you are in him, the more great he looks. And the more great he looks in you, the more happy you are in him. And they're one. So when he created me to share in his glory, my pleasure in him is really just more of his pleasure in him. And he's expanding out, as it were, so that I can be drawn in to that intra-Trinitarian delight that God has in God. That's heavy. But that's the best I can do with that one either. Well, I just want to pray that what I've said here, to the degree that it's true, you'll believe it.